limited privilege of living in a country where access to abortion is better than it is in Poland. An underground network in Europe brings together volunteers with people who need abortions. It's Friday, May 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, since the war in Ukraine began, that network has seen its requests for help double. Also this hour, a recap of this week's primaries led by Senate contests in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And last year, we analyzed whether the lifestyle of the fictional TV family The Simpsons was attainable for the middle class. A writer on the show listened and decided to answer that question with an episode of their own. Get set for a hot weekend. Record temperatures could be heading our way. It's 4.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Russia's intensifying bombardments as Ukrainian forces fighting the invasion await the next major installment of U.S. assistance from the nearly $40 billion in aid Congress authorized. The latest Russian attack reported to be on a cultural center in Kharkiv. The Associated Press reporting at least seven people, including an 11-year-old, were injured. While tracking one major conflict, the Pentagon's actively working on resolving a different kind of emergency at home, a baby formula shortage. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the military is playing an active role in getting formula flown into the U.S. as fast as possible. We're working this very, very hard, have since last night, and uh, I don't think it's going to be very long uh, before, A, there's a sourcing solution, and B, um, you know, that flight is actually uh, in the air. Meanwhile, Indo-Pacific Security Central on President Biden's agenda in South Korea, first stop of his first official visit to Asia. But his security details drawing attention after two Secret Service agents who arrived before the president was sent back home. And Pierre Frank Ordonez reports one was accused of an alcohol-fuel confrontation. One of the individuals was accused of assaulting a South Korean citizen in Seoul a day before Biden arrived in the country, according to multiple reports. The employee was investigated by local police, but no charges were filed. A spokesman for the Secret Service told NPR that Secret Service is aware of the off-duty incident and that they were looking into potential policy violations. Anthony Guglielmi said the two individuals will be immediately returned back to their posts of duty and placed on administration leave. He emphasized that the incident would have no impact on Biden's trip. The president arrived in Seoul on Friday for his first visit as president to Asia. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The Israeli army says it has not opened a criminal investigation of its soldiers' conduct when a Palestinian-American journalist was killed covering an Israeli army operation. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. The Israeli military says it has not launched a criminal probe of its soldiers because journalist Shirin Abu Akleh was killed during, quote, active combat. It says it has not ruled out a criminal probe in the future, but Israel does not believe one of its soldiers deliberately targeted the journalist. The military says it's still looking into who shot her, an Israeli soldier or a Palestinian gunman. Palestinian officials and Al Jazeera accuse the Israeli army of killing the journalist. Newly released cell phone footage from that day shows a group of people, including journalists, chatting and walking calmly along an open street before rapid gunfire suddenly rang out. The video suggests it was not an active battle zone at the time, but it does not prove who shot her. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Dow Jones Industrial Average close-up slightly, ending the day at 31,262. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts is among several states across the country expected to see extremely high temperatures this weekend. WBUR's Josie Garino reports scientists say this blast of heat before summer is a sign of climate change. Environmental experts call this the new normal, extreme heat events in late spring. Madeline Scammell is a professor of environmental health at Boston University. She cites this year's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report as evidence of increasing extreme heat. One of the things about this report is that it's really no question that climate change is caused by human activity. Scammell says people can make a difference. Taking public transportation and reducing use of individual vehicles can make a contribution to climate change. Scammell says such a move can greatly improve air quality, so we can breathe a little easier knowing little changes make a big difference. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Boston paramedics expect to respond to 15 to 20 percent more emergency calls than usual over the hot weekend. The city's emergency medical services deputy superintendent Len Shubatowski says personnel will take people out of their hot environments and triage from there. Sometimes it's as simple as just getting somebody into an air-conditioned environment, getting them into the back of an ambulance, loosening their clothes a little bit. We can do some more rapid cooling with either ice packs or sort of wet blankets, but those are also things that are short-term. He recommends people stay hydrated, avoid alcohol and caffeine, and rest when possible. These actions can prevent heat exhaustion or the more serious heat stroke. Parents and caregivers can now visit the state's VaxFinder website for help booking a COVID-19 booster appointment for their child. The Department of Public Health says boosters of the Pfizer vaccine became available today for kids ages 5 to 11. The shots come as COVID metrics are on the rise in Massachusetts. In sports, the Red Sox host the Mariners tonight over at Fenway. The forecast cloudy tonight. Chances some showers or thunderstorms. Lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog clouds give way to mostly sunny skies. Hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs in the mid-90s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. Imagine stepping across a border and discovering that reproductive rights you once took for granted are now a crime. For millions of Ukrainians, that discovery happened when they fled the war in their home country and set foot here in Poland. Ukraine has very liberal abortion laws. In Poland, it's almost entirely illegal. But while Poland's anti-abortion effort has the weight of the government behind it, there is another movement, one that's secretive, underground, and punishable with prison time. You see it right here on the border, if you know where to look. At the Medica border crossing, there are bright blue porta potties for Ukrainian refugees who've just arrived in Poland. And someone has taped flyers inside the doors of these toilets. They offer information in Ukrainian and Russian. My colleague is reading aloud. It says, You are not alone. The card has phone numbers for a gynecology hotline. There are logos for Polish reproductive rights groups that connect with a network of women's organizations across Europe. 
Members of these groups take real risks to help refugees and others access reproductive services that they would have no trouble getting in Ukraine. Oksana Litvinenko asked to meet us at our hotel in Warsaw, not at her home or office, because anti-abortion protesters have targeted her personally. And so she takes precautions. My colleague interprets as she speaks. Of course. Even they were coming to my daughter's school. She was 12 back then. And we have different last names with my daughter. And that keep her safe. Litvinenko is Ukrainian and has lived in Poland for 18 years. In a country that has targeted LGBTQ people, she wears a watch with a rainbow wristband. Her hair is cut into a short buzz. She has a day job which gives her access to the people she helps through her volunteer work. <laughs> Definitely. She is a Ukrainian-Polish interpreter. And so when refugees need to end a pregnancy, they confide in her. But she says they rarely ask outright. They use euphemisms. They are trying to describe it in other way. They are asking for uh, pills to make period come faster. People in other countries can legally send abortion pills to Poland, but here Litvinenko speaks very carefully. Okay, I didn't give it to their hands. Are you saying that carefully because giving someone an abortion pill is a crime in Poland? Yeah. Yeah. Three years of prison. Three years of prison. And yet you still give these women the help they ask for. Polskie feministki, jestem feministką. Polskie feministki różnią się od feministek z innych krajów, bo mają konkretny cel. I am feminist and Polish feminists are different than feminists from different countries because they have a real goal. At this, Litvinenko sits up straight and smiles for the first time in our conversation, a wry grin. She stops twisting the thumb ring that she's been turning while we talk. Now I feel here most needed because I'm not only language translator, but also Polish reality translator. The threat of prosecution for helping someone end a pregnancy is real. Justyna Wiedzenska is a member of a Polish group called Abortion Dream Team. She is the first activist to face criminal charges under this law. She was charged two months ago, accused of helping a woman who was in an abusive relationship end a pregnancy. She was begging us, please help me somehow. My colleague NPR correspondent Joanna Kakissis spoke with the activist. Because she couldn't travel abroad. He, uh, he told her that if she traveled with their few years old kid, then he report a kidnapping to the police. And uh, after that, when uh, he 
just blackmailed her, uh, she decided just to ask if you could please send me pills, but please do it uh, in total secret. But he somehow got the information because he uh, he called the police and said she received kind of help from somebody. She got pills from some somebody. Vijenska doesn't know whether prosecutors will be lenient and give her a suspended sentence or make an example out of her and send her to prison for years. There is another layer to this story, and we'll warn you that this might be difficult to hear. Russian soldiers have used rape as a weapon of war, and that can lead to pregnancy. They want to keep a top secret of this. Even they don't want to share this with their families. Christina Katzpura is head of the women's rights group FEDERA. That's one of the organizations behind those flyers and the porta-potties at the border. FEDERA has existed since 1991. Back then, abortion was widely available in Poland. Lately, she's been doing a lot of work with Ukrainian refugees, some of whom have been raped. They said me that uh, war will end one day, and we have to continue our normal life. How can I tell about this to my partner or husband? He has been fighting in Ukraine. We uh, want to have a normal life. I don't want to be regarded as a victim of sexual violence, victim of rapes. Even if I sometimes ask them just to be a victim, to to certificate this case, no, no. Technically, Polish law allows abortion in cases of rape. But according to Poland's health ministry, the country has never had more than three such cases in a year. Katzpora says the government makes ending a pregnancy practically impossible, even for rape victims. You know, investigation, announcement to to the police and prosecutor. Could you imagine uh, a poor Ukrainian woman or girl Uh, who will go and answer many questions and will wait for two weeks for the decision of prosecutor. Katzpora's organization, Fedora, has set up a hotline. It's staffed by a Ukrainian gynecologist, a doctor who is herself a refugee from Kyiv. Sometimes the advice the doctor gives is, call your auntie Basha. The phrase in Polish is Czocia Basha. Uh, Czocia Basha, um, it's auntie Barbara. Auntie Basha, it's diminutive from quite traditional Polish name, a name that you can put in your phone and it doesn't look suspicious because everyone in Poland has some Auntie Basha. Zuzana Juban is one of many women who identify as Chocha Basha. The B in Basha stands for Berlin. Juban is Polish, but she's living in Germany, where abortion is widely available. In Austria, where we have Auntie Vienna, with the name sounding a little bit like Vienna, and uh, Auntie Czesia in the Czech Republic. Those are names that are common in their respective countries. This is an underground network stretching across Europe. From Germany, Juban helps people in Poland who need abortions. Most often, she sends them pills. Other times, her collective helps them travel west. They provide train tickets, housing, counseling, whatever people need. I have this limited privilege of living in a country where access to abortion is uh, better than it is in Poland. Uh, So I I simply feel that I have the obligation to, to share this privilege. Since the war began in late February, the requests to her network have doubled. 
By their count, the aunties have helped more than 400 Ukrainians end their pregnancies. I asked Juban to share the story of one of them, and she told me about a woman whose husband was killed by the Russians. She's in Poland for uh, four weeks and uh, just learned about the death of her husband. And uh, she simply cannot have uh, keep this, uh, like, continue this pregnancy. And this was like a really a heavy emotional moment for me, uh, like the war becoming very real through, through this one story. And uh, I shed some tears, but uh, also supported her in, um, in ordering pills, told her where to do it. And um, yeah, I cried a bit, but then thought, okay, Susa, this is the new reality. Get used to it. Are you able to go home to Poland? Do you worry that you will be prosecuted if you do? We have this conviction and we try to convince ourselves that, uh, that the fact that we are doing our activism uh, in Germany, where Polish law does not uh, apply, uh, we are relatively safe. But we can never know how uh, Polish prosecutors will, uh, will interpret uh, situations. And actually, since um, we are uncertain how, how this can develop, if they start going after activists, uh, for instance, working abroad, Zuzana Juban told me the name of her group, Auntie Basha, comes from a Kenyan collective called Auntie Jane. That group took its name from the Jane Collective, the underground organization that helped people access abortion in the United States before it was legal. The Jane Collective disbanded after the Supreme Court legalized abortion in the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 60 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, a recap of the midterm primaries this week in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum with the Great Animal Orchestra, an immersive sensory experience celebrating the animal world's beauty and diversity extended through July 10th and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. In business news, the pace of job creation in Massachusetts is slowing. A new report from the state's Department of Labor finds employers here added 10,000 jobs last month. That was less than half the number created in March. Economists say the slowdown could be a sign that interest rate hikes are slowing growth. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed. The Dow up nine points at 31,262. NASDAQ fell three-tenths of a percent, or 34 points, to 11,355. The S&P 500 was flat to end the day at 3,901. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, showcasing the beauty of New England's native plants in a dramatic natural landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. Join WBUR on Tuesday, June 2nd, for the Moth Main Stage featuring five luminaries who'll tell stories based on the theme, past tense, future perfect. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. 
In the forecast, cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The lows around 60. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-90s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. On Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Midterm elections are nearly half a year away, but the primary contest to determine who will run for the House and Senate seats this fall, those have already started. Former President Trump is playing a big role by endorsing Republican candidates who pledge loyalty to him. Some of those candidates had their primaries Tuesday, and more key elections next week will test the power of a Trump endorsement. Joining us now is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Dominic. Hey there, good to join you. Domenico, I'm so sorry. (laughs) So catch us up on what's happened this week so far in Pennsylvania, where Trump-endorsed candidate Dr. Oz took on former hedge fund CEO David McCormick. Yeah, that's right. You know, and Mehmet Oz is only narrowly ahead at this hour by 1,100 votes out of more than 1.3 million. Uh, We aren't likely to know the winner for days, if not weeks, because the margin is just so small. It's well within the 0.5 percentage points that would trigger an automatic recount. And that's bad news for Republicans because it means a delay to the general election in a key Senate race Democrats are targeting as a pickup opportunity after what's really been a bruising Republican primary. Uh, The Democratic nominee is Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who dons a chin beard and tattoos. He had a stroke in the past several days and had a pacemaker installed on election day. He looks the part of a blue collar trucker more than someone with a Harvard degree in the politics of Bernie Sanders. But that's true, too. Uh, This is really going to be a big test for him, for Democrats. And when we finally get to a general election of whether a Democrat with his kind of image and tone can appeal to that populist Venn diagram of the left and some on the right. So much drama. (laughs) President Trump, how have his endorsements fared so far? They've had some mixed success. You know, this week, Oz is, of course, locked in that tight race. Trump got a win in the Pennsylvania governor's race, giving a major boost to state Senator Doug Mastriano. Mastriano is pretty controversial and hard right. He was at Trump's January 6th rally, marched to the Capitol, though he says he left before the violent insurrection took place. And he's an election denier and culture warrior in a purple state, saying if elected, he's going to focus on day one on things like how kids are taught about racism in schools and which bathrooms people can use. Uh, In North Carolina this week, Trump was largely responsible for Congressman Ted Budd winning the GOP nomination uh, for the Senate race, though he had less success with the controversial Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who lost his bid for re-election. Out west in the Idaho governor's race, his preferred candidate, who had the backing of some extremists in the state, took, uh, you know, uh, took on a sitting Republican governor and really was trounced. But even, you know, the explicit, even though the explicit record of endorsements was mixed, the winner, you could really argue, is MAGA. You know, virtually every Republican who's run has tried to be MAGA and vie for Trump support. Not everyone, but most. And, you know, Trump has truly taken over the party's heart and soul. There is just no majority against Trumpism. The minority really is those right now opposed to it. Mm. 
Well, there are more of Trump's candidates who are being tested next Tuesday. Which races are you watching closely? So much of the action really is in Georgia. Uh, you know, Trump recruited and endorsed David Perdue, the former senator, to take on incumbent Governor Brian Kemp because Trump was upset that Kemp didn't do more to overturn the results of the presidential election in the state that he lost. But right now, it looks like Kemp is winning by a lot in the polls, despite Purdue making the entire election essentially pushing Trump's lie. Uh, Purdue is running hardly any ads now, and Trump world behind the scenes has really abandoned Purdue. Uh, it really is shocking to watch, frankly, for someone who was the CEO of Reebok in David Purdue and was considered a business establishment Republican, for him to take this turn, really surprising to a lot of people who've watched his career. Then, of course, there's the Secretary of State's race there. There's no greater target for Trump than Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State, the Republican, who also refused to bow to Trump's pressure on the election. And also watching Texas, where there's a key Democratic primary between Democrat, uh, the uh, Democrat in Congress, uh, Henry Cuellar, against progressive Jessica Cisneros. Cuellar is the only Democrat in Congress who considers himself against abortion rights. Quite the shift in the Democratic Party, which used to have more people who consider themselves against abortion rights. And abortion we're seeing become a huge issue in this election. Thank you. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. You're welcome. This Sunday is The Simpsons season 33 finale. And guess what? It was inspired by none other than our colleagues over at The Indicator from Planet Money. In an episode last year, Patty Hirsch and Stacey Vanek-Smith followed the lead of an Atlantic article to question whether this iconic family's middle-class lifestyle is still attainable today. In late 2020, The Atlantic published its great piece on The Simpsons, and in March of last year, we aired our episode. Tim Long has been writing for The Simpsons for 24 years. So I started kicking that around in my mind, and then I thought, well, what's the funniest way that we could respond? And then it felt like, what if it were a musical? In the show, Homer's son Bart embraces the American dream. And he decides that he, like Homer, will work at the nuclear power plant and replicate his father's middle-class life. And then it takes this crazy turn where Bart is informed via a musical number that that may not be possible anymore. Your dad and his buddies had it swell, but gradually it all went to hell. Factories closed, unemployment was... The primary voice in the song is none other than Hugh Jackman. And he plays a sort of magical singing janitor who takes Bart on a musical journey through the American economy from the end of the Second World War until now. 1945, we won the war. Our boys came back to the factory floor. The Homer gets his nuclear plant job during that post-war boom. Bart's prospects today, however, don't seem so good. For one thing, if he wants his dad's job, he's going to need to go to college. A fact his little sister Lisa takes great delight in telling him. Yo, all I need is a foot in the door and I'll take dad's job when he does at 44. That job you see now needs a PhD while paying student loans leaves you in poverty. What? Oh, Lisa Simpson, such a downer. Such a downer. Uh, truly, though, she has a point. Uh, in fact, when we crunched the numbers on the Simpsons household last year, we worked out that Homer would earn about the equivalent of $50,000 a year in today's dollars. Tough to send a kid to college on that kind of money, let alone get them an advanced degree. It's a good thing kids these days have options. Because there's a lot of new ways a guy can make a dollar. Ride the money train, make it rain, holla. I'll buy and sell Bitcoin, build a new app, do pranks on YouTube, I'm great at that crap. Film TikTok tricks on my sick motorbike. Your chances are slim. Go to hell, Robert Reich. Robert Reich! 
Reich. Robert Reich. <laughs> Economists, they're everywhere. So the former Labour secretary from the Clinton administration came on the show to, as Tim puts it, throw down some facts. The decline of unions, rampant corporate greed, Wall Street malfeasance, and the rise of short-sighted politics all contributed to increased economic inequality, widespread real unemployment... You know who comes out of this episode looking pretty good, though, Patty? Our firefighters. Mm, In the last act of the show, after Bart's fragile hopes for his future have been torched by Lisa and (laughs) Hugh Jackman and Robert Reich... Uh, Bart gets himself into this terrible situation, and he is rescued, saved by firefighters. Hang on tight. You'll be okay. Thanks. By the way, how good's your pay? Pay's good, and pension's great when we retire. Nice. The point that we're trying to make is that the middle class is sort of a vanishing species. And so, you know, we were slightly tongue-in-cheek when we said that fireman is the job that he should get, but he could do worse. Patty Hirsch. Stacey Vanek-Smith. NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 60 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, a conversation with a Ukrainian economist about the cost of rebuilding Ukraine after the war. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Patch, uh, the highs will be in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot, and humid on Sunday, the highs near 97. Cooler with clouds giving way to some sun on Monday, the highs will be in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers2you.com slash WBUR. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life, fairbankandperry.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Justice Department says it's investigating the mass shooting at a supermarket in upstate New York last weekend that left 10 black people dead. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the attack is a painful reminder of the singular impact that hate crimes have not only on individuals but on entire communities. We are deploying every resource we have to ensure accountability for this terrible attack, to pursue justice for the victims and their families, and to provide support to a grieving community. Garland says the Justice Department is investigating whether the shooter, an 18-year-old white man, targeted the victims because of their race. The first of 10 funerals for the victims was held today. 
Russia's defense minister says that nearly 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers fighting to hang on to the key port city of Mariupol have surrendered. NPR's Joanna Kikisis reports some Ukrainian soldiers are refusing to give up and are still holed up under a massive steel plant. Russia says it's imprisoned the soldiers who have already left the Azovstal plant and that no soldiers remain inside. But late Thursday, a commander from one unit posted a short cryptic video to social media suggesting he and others were still inside. My military command and I are on Azovstal territory now, he says in the video. An operation is underway, but I won't go into details. Russian authorities say they intend to remove all soldiers from the steel plant. Russia already occupies the rest of Mariupol, which Russian troops have bombed into ruins. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kiev. Stocks closed mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow was up eight points, the Nasdaq down 33. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. With high heat and humidity in the forecast for the weekend, Mayor Michelle Wu is declaring a heat emergency in the city of Boston. WBUR's Paul Kinerney explains. Mayor Wu says the city is working quickly to protect residents from the extreme weather. Air-conditioned community centers will be open during the day. People are being asked to wear a mask inside these facilities because of the rising COVID cases. There's not enough time to open the city's outdoor pools, but spray parks and playgrounds will be working. The Boston Public Health Commission's emergency shelters are always open and have air conditioning. The city is working with other shelters to protect those experiencing homelessness. The ongoing spike in COVID cases in Massachusetts is having an increasing impact on schools. State education officials report nearly 19,000 students and staff from public K-12 through schools tested positive for the coronavirus in the last week. That's the highest number since January, and it's up 9% from the week before. School districts say the situation is making staffing difficult. Some are using administrative workers to fill in for teachers. This weekend, Republican leaders in Massachusetts will help decide the course of the governor's race. The state GOP convention is tomorrow in Springfield. Delegates will vote on who they want to endorse for governor. A candidate must receive 15 percent support to appear on the September primary ballot. Former state rep Jeff Deal has the endorsement of former President Donald Trump and is expected to be the top vote-getter. He's facing a challenge from Rentham businessman Chris Doty. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. In sports, the Red Sox and the Mariners play tonight over at Fenway. Celtics and the Heat play game three of their playoff series tomorrow at the Garden. The forecast cloudy tonight, chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60. Patchy fog and clouds will give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot, and humid on Sunday, the high near 97. Cooler with clouds giving way to some sun on Monday, the highs in the mid-60s. Cool with more clouds than sun on Tuesday, the highs around 59 degrees. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. 
Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In fits and starts, Russia is making inroads in Ukraine. The city of Mariupol is now in Russian hands. Even as the war pounds on, Western governments are already trying to figure out how to rebuild the country after the war someday ends. The European Commission released a plan to start financing that process through a mix of grants and loans. Here to tell us more about what it would take to rebuild the country is UC Berkeley economist. Yuri Gorodnichenko. Welcome. Thank you. I want to start with the damage that's already been inflicted on Ukraine and what it would cost to rebuild. I imagine it's a staggering number. Can we put even a ballpark figure on it at this point? One way to look at this is to do an inventory of damaged bridges, buildings, and so on, and calculate the cost of replacement. That will be easily in somewhere between 100 and $200 billion. It's, it's a huge number. We can also look at other measures and also, you know, similar efforts that were done in the past. For example, what was the cost of reconstructing Iraq or Afghanistan? If you look at the size of these countries, the level of damage and scale everything to the Ukrainian case, you come to somewhere between $500 billion, maybe $1 trillion. And I gather you argue that there's an opportunity here to eventually rebuild Ukraine better than it was before, to build better public transportation and housing while you're at it, to focus on features like carbon neutrality. That all feels like a very long way away with the war still raging, but you believe that's possible? Yes, of course, there is no point in rebuilding Ukraine the way it was. We had a lot of legacy buildings and everything from the Soviet era which was very energy inefficient. We should really rebuild Ukraine up to modern standards. And this is going to be good, not only in terms of climate change and everything like that, but Ukraine is going to be less dependent on Russian energy, oil and gas. Who pays for all this? In principle, you can find multiple sources to do this. One would be Russian assets, which are frozen now in the US and in other countries. It's probably tricky to make it available to Ukraine, but the proposal put together by the European Union suggests that the European Union itself is willing to pay for the majority of the cost. And obviously other countries are welcome to chip in if they have resources to do so. And Russia, which inflicted all this damage, is there any way of securing any kind of help contribution from them? Well, so seized assets is one option. Another, based on the precedent we had before when Iraq invaded Kuwait, is to have effectively a tax on Russian energy, and a fraction of that tax is going to flow to Ukraine to pay for the reconstruction. Are there past models that might be instructive? The Marshall Plan, for example, that rebuilt Europe after World War II. We can learn a lot from the Marshall Plan. The way it was organized, the way conditionality was done, the way coordination was set up on the ground between American authorities and European authorities. That will be, I think, really a template for a successful reconstruction of Ukraine. One thing, however, is going to be different is that Ukraine has an aspiration to become a member of the European Union. And so it is natural to align the reconstruction of Ukraine, you know, physical infrastructure with modernization of the country in terms of institutions. 
so that Ukraine is going to be at some point a member of the EU family. Ah, that makes sense. So that re the rebuilding is integrated with the joining and becoming politically more aligned with Europe. Yes, that's right. Last question, which is, is speed of the essence here? Is there evidence to suggest that aid, whether it's in grants, loans, whatever form, that it is more valuable if it's delivered early than the same amount of aid that gets held up by months and months of red tape? Yes, absolutely. This is why this conversations about the reconstruction of Ukraine should be happening now. And again, if we go back to the Marshall Plan, remember, the aid did not flow to Europe immediately. It was a couple of years between 1945 and when the Marshall Plan really started to help Europe. And this were very, very difficult years for Europe. We should learn from our mistakes and make sure that there is no unnecessary suffering in Ukraine. Yuri Gorodnichenko is an economist at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Mary Rose. Funerals began today for the 10 victims of the mass shooting in Buffalo. Meanwhile, the racist attack has stirred up emotions nearly 2,000 miles away in El Paso, Texas. That's where a white gunman opened fire in a Walmart to kill Latinos nearly three years ago. Angela Cocherga from member station KTEP reports. When people in El Paso heard the news about Buffalo, they were immediately struck by the similarities with the mass shooting in their own city. Tito Anjondo lost his brother and sister-in-law in the Walmart attack. I just think it's very strange that it was almost exactly the same. And of course, it brought back some feelings. The gunmen accused in each of the attacks both traveled hours to reach their target. Supermarkets filled with shoppers on a Saturday. And both young white men posted hate-filled screeds online before their deadly rampages. During the Walmart shooting, Adria Gonzalez helped some older shoppers escape. The Buffalo shooting made her flash back to the bloodshed she witnessed. Anxiety kicked in. Um, Murray's uh, came back from that morning and inside the Walmart shooting, August the 3rd. County Judge Ricardo Samaniego, who's the highest locally elected official in El Paso, was horrified that someone had carried out a nearly identical hate crime. When it happens over and over again, now it becomes greater a greater impact because each one is building up on the other of how people feel. Rather than lone wolves, the alleged killers could be considered copycats learning from each other. In his screed, the 18-year-old New Yorker arrested for the Buffalo shooting referenced the Texan charged with the El Paso killings. Both of the alleged gunmen wrote that they were inspired by yet another racist mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand. Though the crimes share similarities, El Paso families know each life lost is grieved individually. Healing is personal, Anjondo says. It's hard losing somebody, but the good thing is that we're here to keep their memory alive, and we need to stay positive and do good things in their memory. His brother and sister-in-law died shielding their infant son at Walmart. Anshondo now helps raise the three-year-old who survived. Anshondo started the El Paso chapter of a nonprofit organization that helps crime victims and their families. Right after surviving the Walmart shooting, Gonzalez also set a goal. I did say that I was going to get pregnant and I was not going to lose hope. Her baby girl is due in October. She's already picked out a name. <laughs> Victoria. She's a blessing, a miracle baby. While Gonzalez is creating new life, Samaniego says it's also important to find inspiration in the lives lost. 
Water gently cascades from small fountains in front of a wall with 23 plaques, one for each victim of the El Paso shooting. I think that's the other message is that create something somewhere, for, not only for them, but for the entire community to, to heal, I think was very helpful to us. The Healing Garden is in El Paso's largest public park. 23 trees are surrounded by brightly colored flowers. The rose bushes are now in full bloom. A vigil here is planned for Sunday to honor the Buffalo victims. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. You're listening to All Things Considered. Far out in China's western region of Xinjiang, authorities have imprisoned thousands of people from the Uyghur ethnic minority without legal justification. They've also coerced thousands of Uyghurs into state or factory jobs. China says it's trying to combat terrorism in the region and promote economic growth. And countries, including the U.S., buy millions of dollars worth of goods exported from Xinjiang every year. But a new report from C4ADS, a nonprofit data analysis group based in Washington, says those goods could be made with forced labor. And joining us to explain more is Irina Bukharin. She's the lead analyst on this report. Irina, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I'm normally based in China. And from there, I've covered these wide-scale detentions and emergence of forced labor in the Xinjiang region. But what you've done is examined in minute detail the evolvement of this coercive labor system. Can you explain for us why this is taking place in Xinjiang and who is enforcing it? Yes. The important context here is that the Chinese government is interpreting the distinct identity, religion, and culture of Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples in Xinjiang, who are predominantly Muslim, as both a national security threat and as a cultural threat to Chinese unity. And as such, they've been imprisoning Uyghurs and forcing them into coercive labor conditions, uprooting them from their communities, sending them to work in fields and factories hundreds of miles from their families. China has closed off access to Xinjiang, and that makes it harder to prove whether forced labor is happening by talking to people directly. But the Uyghur diaspora has provided overwhelming evidence through sharing their own experiences and those of relatives and community members that forced labor is taking place at a systemic level in Xinjiang. All right. And what kinds of goods are these Uyghur laborers producing when they're assigned to these state jobs? Are these common products? Might I have them in my house? Yes, these are common products that are entering global supply chains and they're coming to our houses. Um, in particular, some of the goods that we identified that really permeate global supply chains are cotton, tomato-based products, pepper-based products, and various items of fabric as well as minerals. There are already some big technology firms like Hikvision, the Chinese surveillance camera maker that's been sanctioned by the U.S. government because their ties to the surveillance regime in Xinjiang. Are there broader sanctions coming that the U.S. government is planning on these goods from, from Xinjiang? Yes. So last year, Congress passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is coming into effect this coming June. It, among various other measures, presumes that all goods made in Xinjiang were made with forced labor and therefore are banned from entering the United States. So you end this report, Irina, hopefully, with recommendations on what policymakers or consumer groups could do to monitor some of these goods and to address the challenges that you've just raised. What are some of those recommendations? 
Companies and governments need to invest more in some of the methodologies that C4ADS has used to trace supply chains from Xinjiang. And this means relying more on publicly available information. Sometimes this can be easy. There can be um, a lot of information that is available on the Chinese language internet, uh, Chinese companies' websites that tells you whether or not goods are coming from Xinjiang. But sometimes this can be quite difficult as well. That's Irina Bukharin from the nonprofit C4ADS. Thank you, Irina, for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 60 degrees at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, the German-Syrian duo Schoon return to their roots with the release of a new album. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Win a diamond necklace or a cooking class in the WBUR Gala Auction. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. A limited number of free ferry trips to the Boston Harbor Islands will be available tomorrow. The Harbor Islands National and State Park opens for the season tomorrow. Free tickets are on a first-come, first-served basis for pickup starting tomorrow at 8 a.m. at Long Wharf. It's a big year for the Harbor Islands. It marks 25 years since they became a national park and 50 years since they became a state park. It's going to be hot there on the islands. Cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms tomorrow. Patchy fog and clouds will give way to mostly sunny skies. Hot temperatures. Temperatures will be in the mid-90s. We've all probably turned to Yelp or Google reviews to find a place to eat, right? Increasingly, though... We're looking for healthcare providers too. You can be the best dentist in the world with the most beautiful office. If no one knows about it, you're not going to have any patients. Open wide and say, ah, I'm Kai Rizdal. Doctors and dentists and consumer reviews. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. So Shkun is basically the first Arabic word that I learned from Amin back in 2015, and it means what? What? Why what? It's kind of like the first impression that we get when, when people hear our music and when they knew what we were doing. That's German musician Torben Diekmann talking about his friend Amin Khayer from Syria. Together, they make up Shkun, a two-man band that is taking everything we think we know about German music and Arabic music Combining the two and then flipping it on its head. Shkun's latest album, Farak, has this German techno vibe, which I love, but it also maintains a really strong Arabic folkloric color, whether it's the melodies or the lyrics. I asked Torben and Amin how they came up with this unique fusion. After a hangover night, we did it. 
<laughs> I want to hear the story. Probably. I want to so, hear the hangover um, story. I'm, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there was a few friends who did like a funding event for people who got like in trouble with law because of like helping refugees coming and stuff like this. So they asked me if I could imagine doing some music there. And the day before the event, I basically asked, I mean, like, you want to join? So we had like 24 hours before the party where we just like wrote our first songs and tried our first things. And we literally didn't really know what we were doing. And I remember when we went to the venue, <laughs> we literally didn't even know how to do proper sound check. And Amin was hiding behind a palm tree inside the venue, <laughs> so nobody could see him. I was afraid because the first place I did it, like after singing in the bathroom, it was this place and it was really nice. How did you two first meet? Mm. I was living back then in a shared flat with eight other people. It was the time when a lot of migrants came to Europe. So we were like all kind of volunteering in different organizations to, to try to help. And there was one of our flatmates who was helping in an institution that collected like everything that people could need. And he was always leaving the house super early, came back super late. And at a certain point, I figured out he's bringing someone with him to sleep over. But we never saw that person, it was a ghost. So one day, I, I don't remember, was it in the morning or in the evening? In the evening. In the evening. I stayed up, so, so I, I catch this person, and that was Amin. Amin, so you had just gotten to Torben's shared flat, but you had yeah. come from a, a long way off. You had started from Deir Azor, your hometown in Syria, and then gotten all the way to Hamburg in Germany. That's, there was some stops in between. I was yeah. not living in Deir Zor. I was studying in Latakia for a long time. I stayed there and I had some issues with the government and I was in jail because I was doing demonstrations with my friends. Oh, wow. And after that, I decided to go out and leave and continue my studies in Turkey. And it didn't work out. And I stayed for a little bit in Turkey, and from Turkey, I decided to go to Europe. Most of us have never gone through an experience like that. Do you mind sharing what that process, that journey was like? We went from Turkey to Greece uh, with a boat. So, and it was a rubber boat. We were about 40 people in the boat. And then from this island in Greece, we moved to Athens, and from Athens, we went with cars to the borders of Macedonia. And it's like some places we walked, some places we took cars. It, it's, it's a hard experience, but if you are in a big group, you're gonna go through it. We were in groups and we were collecting each other as groups. You have to stay as a group. Hmm. And why Germany? How did you end up there? I didn't want to stay in Germany, to be honest. I wanted to go to Sweden. But when I arrived in Hamburg, I saw the harbor and I studied marine engineering. I fell in love with the place. It was just nice. I've noticed with Farak, your new album, you both are leaning more towards original songwriting mm -hmm. rather than the first couple of albums where you were singing Arabic folk songs over beats. Why this transition? We develop, you know, with time we develop. <laughs> And 
we learned and it's part of learning to develop and not stay just singing cover songs. So we don't liberalize Shkun as a cover song band. You've called your new album Firak, mm-hmm. which I've read somewhere means separation. How mm-hmm. did that name come about? Was it related to this journey that you've just described? Yeah, of course, it's part of it. And last year I lost a close member of my family and it was two days before recording the live set. Mm, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah, and that, that was also a big part of naming the track as Farak. Like then the time when we recorded, it was just like, was such an intense time and um, so hard to see what, what was happening to Amin, um, especially when you can't be close to somebody. Hmm. The title track, <laughs> Farak, is beautiful. It's mostly instrumental, but then you hear Amin come in singing. Can you explain what what some of those lyrics are that you're singing, Amin, and what they mean to you? Well, to be honest, the lyrics that I wanted to sing, I forgot them at that day. And I started to just improvise. Saying, really, it's, it's a way of expression, a pain or something like this. And then I say, or oh, my father, something like this. Like, I don't say a lot of words inside it. We planned the recording before the incident with Amin's family member happened. And then, like, two days before, we, like, everything went out of what we could have imagined. So um, we were literally, we didn't know if we should do the recording, if we shouldn't. And, and Amin said, no, I, I, I need it. I, I want to do this. So we were, like, just adapting to what was happening. And somehow, like, the, the song just, like, emerged on stage while, while we were playing there. And that's somehow the beauty of it. That's Torben Diekman and Amin Khayer from the band Shkun. Their latest album is called Farak. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with a 2022 Subaru Crosstrek an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, President Biden wants to counter the economic might of China. 
and he visited a semiconductor plant outside Seoul to kick off a trip aimed at his top foreign policy priority. That's ahead on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dedham Community Theatre, celebrating independent film, now showing The Duke and Montana Story, and reopened every day. Visit DedhamCommunityTheatre.com. I'm senior business reporter Zaninjor Enwameka, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is the moment, in my view, to invest in one another, to deepen our business ties bring our people even closer together. President Biden is in Seoul hoping to boost business ties between the U.S. and South Korea. It's Friday, May 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the president's trip to Asia. Also this hour, a judge's decision to throw out Democratic-drawn congressional maps is pitting New York lawmakers against each other in a year already tilting against the party's chances of holding on to the House. And the CDC is asking health care providers to be on the lookout for rashes caused by the monkeypox virus. Health officials are reporting clusters of cases in countries the disease is usually not seen. It's 501. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The lawyer for a Russian soldier at a war crimes trial says a Ukrainian court could show leniency because the Russian army did not prepare their troops for the war. NPR's Greg Myrie reports that case is being closely watched as the first such trial of the conflict. The Russian Army sergeant, 21-year-old Vadim Shishamarin, has already pleaded guilty to the deadly shooting of an unarmed Ukrainian civilian in February. His lawyer said the Russian military gave the troops little advance warning they would be invading Ukraine and little guidance once they got here. Shishamarin says fellow soldiers told him to shoot the 62-year-old Ukrainian man because he was talking on a phone and they feared he might be revealing their position. The sergeant said he initially refused, but admits he then fired a burst of shots that killed the man. Sentencing is expected Monday. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Kiev. President Biden today was visiting a South Korean computer chip factory that will be the model for a similar facility to be built in Texas. Biden speaking at the Samsung factory as he opened his first trip to Asia as president. Samsung is promising to open a $17 billion semiconductor plant in Texas. A shortage of the chips has been affecting the availability of everything from autos to kitchen appliances as well as other goods. Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk is hitting back at an accusation of sexual misconduct, saying a news article alleging he propositioned a flight attendant on a corporate jet is false and politically motivated. Here's NPR's Bill Chapel. Musk is denying a report by the Insider website, which published an account by a woman who says Musk exposed himself to her friend, touched her leg, and propositioned her in 2016 when the woman's friend worked as a flight attendant on SpaceX's fleet of corporate jets. The flight attendant filed a sexual misconduct claim against Musk, and SpaceX paid her $250,000 in 2018, Insider reported. It says the settlement includes non-disclosure clauses. Musk disputed the story on Twitter, the platform he's in the process of buying, saying last night, quote, Those wild accusations are utterly untrue. The billionaire calls the allegations a political attack on him. 
Bill Chappell, NPR News. The first funeral for a victim of last week's Buffalo supermarket shooting. A day after the victim's families called on the nation to confront the threat of white supremacist violence. A private service was held today for Hayard Patterson, a deacon at a church not far from the supermarket where the gunman opened fire. Ten black people were killed. Three others were wounded. The alleged gunman, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, is a, in a racist screed detailed his hatred for black people. He's been charged with murder and faces life in prison if convicted. Stocks recovered some of their losses but still ended the week down. The Dow up 8 points. The Nasdaq fell 33 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. It's going to be a scorcher of a weekend in Boston and across Massachusetts. Tomorrow and Sunday could break records. With temperatures expected to rise well into the 90s. WBUR's Jack Mitchell has more on what that means for our health and how you can stay safe. This weekend's forecast is not normal. I'm concerned about it, the fact that we're having such severe heat this early in the year. Dr. Gora Basu is a physician and health equity researcher at Cambridge Health Alliance. It's important for us to connect the dots that climate change is making days like this more likely. Basu says extreme heat poses a range of health risks. The things I think about is increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risks of strokes, increased risk of dysregulation of diabetes. Basu recommends staying hydrated and indoors where it's cooler. He urges emergency medical care for anyone who begins feeling nauseous or lightheaded. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. Average temperatures in the Northeast have been rising at an accelerating rate over the last century because of climate change. Boston is experiencing about a dozen days over 90 degrees every summer. One town in Massachusetts is reinstating its mask mandate. Brookline will require masks starting Monday in any of its public buildings, including libraries, senior centers, and all public schools. Town officials say the change is due to a rising number of COVID cases. Brookline's schools joined Boston and Chelsea, which never lifted their school mask mandates. This month, some other school districts have begun recommending mask wearing in classes. They include Arlington, Belmont, and Cambridge. A spring of disruption on the MBTA Blue Line is about to enter Phase 2. On Sunday, the T will shut down train service between Wonderland and Orient Heights for about two and a half weeks. Shuttle buses will run instead. The closure will allow crews to repair a pedestrian bridge at Suffolk Downs. This past Wednesday, the T reopened the Blue Line under the Boston Harbor. That section was shut down for more than three weeks for tunnel repairs. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, chance of some showers or thunderstorms, lows around 60, patchy fog, clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Even as Russia's war in Ukraine rages on, President Biden has headed off to Asia, his first trip there since taking office. He kicked things off at a semiconductor factory in South Korea. It's owned by Samsung, which is spending $17 billion to build a similar plant in Texas. Biden is looking for ways to better compete with China by working with allies like South Korea. So this is the moment, in my view, to invest in one another, to deepen our business ties, to bring our people even closer together. But there are huge challenges to increasing trade and investment. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is traveling with the president, and she joins us from Seoul. Welcome, Asma. Hi there. 
So why does Biden think that closer ties with countries like South Korea could help counter China? You know, to put it simply, Emily, he is concerned about China's rise. And COVID really exposed the weaknesses in the global supply chain. The president talks frequently about the need for democratic allies to work together to make economies stronger and more resilient. He really describes it as one of the key challenges of our times. But I will say, you know, Emily, it is not easy because of things like labor standards. In fact, President Biden today made an explicit plea to Samsung to work with unions in the United States. And, and you know, really, Economic strategy is a key part of this trip. While President Biden will be here in Asia, he's planning to announce the launch of this new economic framework for the region. Hold up. Didn't the Obama White House launch a trade deal with Asia that the Trump administration then tore up? So is this Mm -hmm. that one or is this a new economic framework? You know, Emily, I'm sure that you recall, and many listeners probably do, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It had some huge political critics, both the left and the right. And on his first day in office, former President Donald Trump withdrew from TPP. And I will say, frankly, there's not a whole lot of appetite from Democrats to rejoin that trade agreement. I spoke to Evan Medeiros about this the other day. He handled Asia policy under former President Barack Obama. The Biden team is not interested in negotiating trade agreements or trying to rejoin TPP. And that matters in East Asia, because in East Asia, economic security is national security. And if the United States is not able to present itself as both the economic partner of choice as well as the national security partner of choice, that is a liability, and it's one that the Chinese can and are exploiting. So in lieu of entering a multinational trade agreement like TPP, the Biden administration is carving out this new initiative called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. President Biden will roll out more details in Japan about this on Monday. But broadly, it is not a tangible trade agreement like we normally think of. This is more about setting the rules of the road around things like supply chains and digital trade. We've been seeing American political leaders trying to focus their foreign policy on China for years now, but something always comes up that seems to pull their attention away because there are other crises happening in the world. How is Biden finding time for this trip, given what's happening in Ukraine right now? You know, I do think it is noteworthy that the president is here in Asia while the war continues in Europe. You know, I will say also, though, that this has been a continuous balancing act for him. The administration's Indo-Pacific strategy was released on February 11th, just two weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. And experts tell me that there are really two main takeaways from the Ukraine crisis for Asia policy. One is this concern from some Asian allies about whether the United States actually has the bandwidth, the resources to deal with simultaneously crises in Europe and Asia. The other takeaway, though, they say, and perhaps this is more positive, is the sense that alliances really do matter and that the United States has been instrumental in bringing allies in Europe and allies in the Pacific together to punish Russia for its aggression. And, you know, we see this in how South Korea and Japan have worked with the United States on export controls and sanctions. The thing is, experts say that, you know, this transatlantic, trans-Pacific bond could be an actual effective deterrent for other countries, you know, say like China. Of course, the key question is whether this global bond will actually be a long-lasting relationship. We shall see then. NPR's Asma Khalid in Seoul, thank you. My pleasure. Last month, a New York court threw out 
the congressional district map for the state that was drawn by Democrats. A new map drawn by an unelected special master is expected to be finalized as early as today. And Democrats are furious. They already know the new map will force some incumbent Democrats to run against each other, creating more opportunities for Republicans to pick up House seats and improving their chances of taking control of the House in November. To talk us through the Democrats' political drama is NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis. Hey, Sue. Hey there. So it seems less than ideal that these maps are still being figured out, what, nearly halfway through the election year? Why are we here? Well, you know, Democrats thought they had drawn some pretty good maps. They controlled the entire redistricting process in the state, and the map they drew earlier this year was approved by the state legislature with super majorities of support. But last month, in a series of court rulings, that map was thrown out. Basically, the courts ruled that Democrats gerrymandered so aggressively, it violated the state's constitution. Democrats were trying to shore up their majorities by basically eliminating as much competition as possible for their state's 26 districts. The map they wanted would have created 20 safe Democratic seats, four seats that leaned Republican, and just two competitive seats. So when the court throws out the map, the process calls for a judge to appoint someone who's known as a special master. They're an unelected expert who can draw maps that are more fair and then submit that map back to the court for approval. The draft map was released on Monday, and Mary Louise, it is completely safe to say it has rocked the New York delegation. Rocked the delegation. It's so interesting because you know, drawing up a map sounds like a bureaucratic <laughs> exercise, but this is, I mean, serious disputes yeah. coming out of this, both among Democrats in New York and in the party nationally, right? Yeah. I mean, there are two major complaints among Democrats. First is that the new maps would pit several Democratic incumbents against each other. That includes notably two veteran lawmakers, Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and Carolyn Maloney, who chairs the Oversight Committee, they could now be competing for the same Manhattan-based district. It's also generated a ton of anger at Sean Patrick Maloney. He's the chairman of the House Democrats 2022 campaign operation. He's already announced he would run in a new district where his house is located, but that seat is anchored around another Democrat's district, fellow Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones. So that means Jones is going to have to choose whether to run against Maloney or another freshman, Jamal Bowman. And both Jones and Bowman are black men, which leads to the second complaint here. And that involves accusations of racism. I mean, Democrats are really mad at this idea of forcing two black lawmakers to run against each other and essentially dilute black representation in the delegation in the end, because one of them would lose. And another New York member of Democratic leadership, caucus chairman Hakeem Jeffries, has also echoed these accusations of racism because the new map would divvy up neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens that are historically black. And I want to be clear that the new districts would still be minority represented districts. It's just not in a way that the incumbents that represent them, like Jeffries, would like them to be. Okay, so Democrats are mad. What about Republicans? How are they responding to the new maps? Oh, this is great news for them. I mean, the new map would not only increase the number of Republican-leaning seats, it would also create as many as five new competitive seats. If you consider so much of the 2022 fundamentals already benefit Republicans, they're already expected to pick up seats, they're already favored to take the majority, this outcome just makes that even more likely. They also mm -hmm. get the political gift of watching Democrats fight it out all summer long. Um, there's a lot of internal fighting, too. I mean, some Democrats, including New York Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have called on Maloney to step aside if he okay. goes through with challenging an incumbent. But Speaker Nancy Pelosi says that he, she supports him in that role. And PR Sue Davis, thank you. You're welcome. Scientists across Europe and North America have identified an outbreak of a rare disease called monkeypox. 
The outbreak is small, but widespread. There are about 100 cases in 11 countries which don't normally see the disease. As NPR's Michaeline Duclef reports, how it's spreading is a mystery. Anne Ramoyne is an epidemiologist at the University of California, Los Angeles, and has spent her career studying monkeypox. For two decades, I've been working on monkeypox. During that entire time, she's never seen an outbreak like the one happening right now. There are dozens of suspected cases in Montreal, Lisbon, Madrid, London, and Paris. Well, it's very unusual because we've never seen this kind of large clustering of cases occur in Europe and uh, North America. It it, has never uh, happened. In all these countries, scientists don't know yet where people are catching monkeypox. How exactly is this being transmitted? Is this close contact? Is this sexual transmission? Is it because of a contact with a a product that potentially has been contaminated with monkeypox? Although this version of monkeypox isn't usually deadly, it can cause a nasty illness that lasts for several weeks. Typically, people have a fever, muscle aches, and then a rash on their face, mouth, hands, and possibly genitals. Bahuma Tatanji is an infectious disease doctor at Emory University. She says the rash looks a lot like the chicken pox. Over time, as the, the rash progresses, the lesions can become pustules, so filled with pus. And then eventually they rupture and become encrusted. In the past, almost all outbreaks of monkeypox have occurred in West and Central Africa, where the virus circulates in rodents and primates. People catch the virus from an animal bite or scratch, then the virus spreads only to a handful of other people. These outbreaks have been small in the past because humans are not the traditional host of the virus, so the transmission between humans has not been quite efficient. But in this new outbreak, she says, the transmission between people looks a bit more efficient, more widespread. Most of the infected people haven't traveled to Africa, and some haven't had contact with other cases. This means the virus is spreading cryptically or undetected in several major cities in Europe and Canada. Which is making epidemiologists to worry about the possibility of local transmission outside of an environment where the virus traditionally is endemic. And that makes you wonder, how is it spreading and how was it introduced? And to wonder how many more cases are out there. For that reason, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is asking healthcare workers to be on the lookout for monkeypox in patients, regardless of their travel history. Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 59 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, NPR TV critic Eric Degen says George Carlin's American Dream, which debuts today on HBO, shows how the comedian's persona sharpened over the years from genial jokester to hardened cynic. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civicleadership. In business news, former UMass and NBA basketball player Marcus Camby plans to open a craft brewery taproom in Amherst this fall. 
Camby is a partner with White Lion Brewing Company of Springfield. He and company officials will be in Amherst tomorrow to celebrate the announcement the brewing company previously launched an ale named after Camby. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow up nine points at 31,262. NASDAQ fell three-tenths of a percent, or 34 points, to 11,355. And the S&P 500 was flat to end the day at 3901. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 630. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, chances some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs in the mid-90s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement has the tools to spy on almost any American. A recent investigation into ICE's operations found that the agency has long gone beyond its immigration enforcement mandate. It's been getting around state and local privacy laws to collect huge amounts of data from the American public. This two-year investigation culminated in a recent report released from the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology. Nina Wong is one of the authors of that report, and she joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered, Nina. Thank you very much. So I read this shocking statistic in your report, which is that ICE can locate three out of four American adults through their utility records. There are state laws that are meant to prevent ICE from getting that data from public utility companies, even driver license information from the DMV. But you've discovered in your report that ICE has been circumventing these laws. How are they doing this? Yeah. In the past, if ICE wanted to obtain utility record information on a specific individual, it would, in most circumstances, need to go directly to the gas, water, or other utility company and issue a subpoena for that information. However, ICE has found a very convenient way to sidestep that requirement. ICE has been able to just buy up the utility records of almost every single person in America. So this includes utility information, driver data, images of license plates when you drive past a toll, property records, employment records, and sometimes even social media. So these are huge databases that really capture a 360-degree view of a person's life. In the past, ICE has been known to use this kind of data to identify and conduct raids on undocumented immigrants. Those raids have dropped under the Biden administration But if ICE is gathering data on not just these undocumented immigrants, but most Americans, do you know what they're doing with this data? Yeah, so the really alarming thing is that ICE is so secretive about its surveillance practices that it's incredibly difficult to know exactly how it's using all this information. ICE certainly does use this data to target people for deportation, 
but there are currently no restrictions that limit ICE to any specific use cases, nor is there any mechanism for transparency to the public that would hold them accountable to these use cases. So we should say that we reached out to ICE for comment, and they told us that they do use various forms of technology to investigate violations of the law while respecting civil liberties, and they focus on individuals who, quote, pose a threat to national security, public safety, and border security. Did ICE say anything to you when you were writing this report about why they needed all this data? We have reached out to DHS, and we have sent them a copy of our research. However, they have not responded directly to us. And if this kind of surveillance that you describe has been going on for at least a decade because of all this data we are generating and can't help but generate, why has this been difficult for lawmakers to rein in? Well, I would say that ICE surveillance is so secretive that many lawmakers simply have no idea what's happening. For example, we found that Rhode Island was the first state in which ICE ran face recognition searches on the entire state's DMV database. This was in 2008. It took Congress over a decade to discover that this was happening. And it wasn't because ICE disclosed this information, but rather because Congress learned about it in the newspaper. So we're seeing that lawmakers simply haven't had the chance to put limits on ICE surveillance because they often have no idea that these programs even exist. And finally, there's a history of tension between immigrant communities and ICE. I imagine this new information you're telling me about here would only deepen that lack of trust. Absolutely. When ICE conducts surveillance on communities, it often deters immigrants from activities that are essential to the safety of all of society when people are afraid to go to the police or visit the doctor when they are sick or obtain proper licensing to drive a vehicle. That was Nina Wong. She's a co-author of a recent report by the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology that uncovered the immigration and customs enforcement's use of far-reaching surveillance on the American public. Thanks for being on, Nina. Thank you. A new HBO documentary on the late comedy legend George Carlin charts his evolving style over a lifetime of forming. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says George Carlin's American Dream, which debuts tonight, shows how Carlin's comedy persona sharpened over the years from genial jokester to hardened cynic. 400,000 words in the English language, and there are only seven of them that you can't say on television. That's the beginning of one of George Carlin's most famous comedy bits, featured in HBO's documentary through audio recorded at a performance that led to Carlin's arrest. Those are the words that will infect your mind, curve your spine, and lose the war for the Allies. We can't say the actual words Carlin highlighted in his routine, thanks to the kind of broadcast regulations that led the comic to create his groundbreaking bit in the first place. But HBO's documentary offers a masterful exploration of how Carlin evolved from an establishment-friendly comic to an urgent commentator on social ills, becoming one of stand-up comedy's most influential figures in the process. The program often makes this point by talking directly to the comics he inspired, from Jerry Seinfeld to W. Kamal Bell, who speaks here about how Carlin's routines remain relevant in modern times. Because George Carlin bits are still being shared on social media to go, you don't understand how rights work? Look at this bit. This country's only 200 years old and already we've had 10 major wars. So we're good at it. The documentary uses lots of sly techniques to bring in the voice of Carlin, who died in 2008, including audio from an interview for an autobiography recorded on cassette tape, 
where Carlin talks about his early problems with authority figures. My own experience of authority is one of opposition to not just questioning authority but actively opposing it and i was a pot smoker when i was 13. i was saying your values suck i don't buy that authority comes on a direct line from god all authority comes from within that disdain for authority wasn't apparent in his early comedy career in the 1960s where he became a fixture on straight-laced variety and talk shows by the early 1970s, Carlin would ditch his suits and clean-cut image for a more hippie-influenced approach with long hair, a beard, and routines that challenged capitalism, militarism, and consumerism. He hosted the first episode of Saturday Night Live, recorded comedy albums that went gold, and appeared on The Tonight Show over 130 times. Co-director Judd Apatow previously directed a more reverent HBO documentary about Gary Shandling that could feel a bit too worshipful at times. But Apatow doesn't make that mistake here, including Carlin's dark moments and poignant tales from the comic's daughter Kelly Carlin on the drug and alcohol addictions of both her parents. Toward the end of his life, Carlin's routines applauded natural disasters and could sound a bit like nihilistic rants, which lost fans like talk show host Stephen Colbert. Well, it did go really dark, and he lost me a bit at the end. It was too dark for me. If it's a bit, then God bless him. But to pursue that level of darkness is expecting a lot from your audience. By being honest about the comic's triumphs and failures, George Carlin's American dream truly soars, creating a nuanced, insightful portrait of one of stand-up comedy's most thoughtful iconoclasts. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 59 degrees in Boston at 529. Coming up on All Things Considered, a conversation with the mayor of Warsaw about how the, his city is managing the influx of Ukrainian refugees. He says the city's population went up by 15% since the outset of the conflict. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an opera in jazz. Cutler Majestic Theater, now through the 22nd. BLO.org. Former U.S. National Security Council Director for European Affairs Alexander Vindman said Russia's invasion of Ukraine marks the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Vindman will join me for a candid conversation about the war in Ukraine at the WBUR Gala on May 26th. Limited tickets remain at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to our sponsors, the Gammon Family Charitable Foundation and Dinah Beekner Vischer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says it's expediting imports of baby formula to help ease the ongoing shortage in the United States. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the Defense Department will provide aircraft to pick up the formula and accelerate its delivery to the U.S. We're doing the sourcing work in the sourcing right now to uh, to arrange for the first 
uh, flight uh, to get um, to get uh, formula from Zurich, Switzerland uh, to the United States. It will be going to a, a Plainfield, Indiana, this, this first flight. The severe shortage of baby formula was triggered by the closure of the Abbott Nutrition Factory in Michigan earlier this year. It was shut down due to suspected contamination. The Food and Drug Administration says it's working closely with the facility to resume production. Wall Street ended the day mixed after a series of sharp losses this week. The S&P 500 dipped briefly into bear market territory before recovering. NPR's David Gura reports the broad-based index was trading down more than 20 percent from its recent high set in early January. Wall Street's sell-off has continued to deepen, fueled by fears of high inflation and the Federal Reserve's ability to fight prices that have been increasing at their fastest pace in decades. Tech companies have been hit especially hard after years of record growth, but losses have gotten to be more widespread. Bank stocks are trading lower, and so is Deere & Company, the agricultural equipment manufacturer, after the company reported earnings for the first quarter. Deere has had difficulty navigating supply chain issues, which is another big concern for Wall Street broadly, along with uncertainty surrounding the fallout from the war in Ukraine and China's latest crackdown on COVID. David Gura. NPR News, New York. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up eight points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The city of Boston and the state will have ways for people to cool off this weekend. Temperatures are forecast to be in the low to mid-90s with high humidity tomorrow and Sunday. The city of Boston has declared a heat emergency. The declaration means the city will open 15 community centers as cooling sites. There will also be 50 splash pads and parks and playgrounds where people can get wet and cool off. The Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation will open 15 spray decks statewide. Boston paramedics expect to respond to 15 to 20 percent more emergency calls than usual over the hot weekend. The city's emergency medical services deputy superintendent Lou Shubatowski says, uh, Len Shubatowski says personnel will take people out of their hot environments and triage from there. Sometimes it's as simple as just getting somebody into an air-conditioned environment, getting them into the back of an ambulance, loosening their clothes a little bit. We can do some more rapid cooling with either ice packs or sort of wet blankets, but those are also things that are short-term. He recommends people stay hydrated, avoid alcohol and caffeine, and rest when possible. These actions can prevent heat exhaustion or the more serious heat stroke. WBUR's Josie Garino reports scientists say this blast of heat before summer is a sign of climate change. Environmental experts call this the new normal, extreme heat events in late spring. Madeline Scammell is a professor of environmental health at Boston University. She cites this year's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report as evidence of increasing extreme heat. One of the things about this report is that it's really no question that climate change is caused by human activity. Scammell says people can make a difference. Taking public transportation and reducing use of individual vehicles can make a contribution to climate change. Scammell says such a move can greatly improve air quality, so we can breathe a little easier knowing little changes make a big difference. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12, Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, 
where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. In the forecast, cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms. Lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot and humid on Sunday, the high near 97. Cooler with clouds giving way to some sun on Monday. The highs will be in the mid-60s. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Warsaw, Poland, at an official press conference by the mayor of Warsaw in a very unofficial setting. We are on the banks of the Wisła River on a beautiful spring day under a towering tree, and the mayor is sitting in a wicker chair speaking about summer activities on the water to an audience of Polish reporters. When he finished, I sat down with the mayor to talk about more serious topics, the way this city has been transformed by the influx of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war in their home country. Warsaw Mayor Rafał Czeskowski, welcome to All Things Considered. Yes, pleasure. This war has had such a major impact on the city of Warsaw. Is there one number you can point to that demonstrates the scale of the challenge that your city is facing right now? Yes, we, we have accepted since the uh, outset of the conflict 300,000 refugees in, in Warsaw and the counties around it, which means that the population of my city went up by 15%, which is uh, incredible and quite considerable. When you look at the number of challenges that the city faces in providing care for Ukrainians, from housing to transportation to medical care to schooling, what's the weakest pressure point right now? What concerns you the most? Well, the most, uh, the, 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 the biggest problem is that the central government doesn't have any strategy. And you mean the national government? The national government doesn't have any strategy and it doesn't ask the European Union to actually come up with a strategy either. And uh, what you're observing in Poland is uh, mostly based on improvisation and a goodwill of the people. This is like civil society showing its strength on the non-governmental organizations and us. Most of the burden is on us. So uh, the biggest problem is the lack of strategy. We are having our own in Warsaw, but that's not enough because no uh, local government uh, can deal with, uh, with a problem of such magnitude on its own. You, of course, represent a left-leaning opposition party. The national government is a far-right party. Do you believe they are getting credit for what has globally been described as a really effective response to this war, when clearly you don't give them credit? Well, first of all, we are centrist and, and progressive, and I don't think that those labels left or right mean anything in Poland anymore. But yes, this is a problem, that, that the government is trying to portray what is happening in, in, in Poland as its huge success. And of course, the national government played its role on the border, but of mo most of what you see, this incredible solidarity, is a result of civil society uh, in action. Uh, so that's why the credit should be given to the people, not to the government. And of course, also, 
all the assistance which uh, the European Union or the United States of America is offering should go mostly to the non-governmental organizations, to refugees themselves and to the local government because we are on the first front of, 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 of that challenge and we are dealing with it day and night. The U.S. Senate passed a $40 billion package that includes aid to Ukraine and other countries just yesterday. Do you expect to see any of that money? And if so, what will you put it to use for first? What is the immediate need? Well, we already see some of the American money because the United States of America is wise enough to give money mostly to uh, United Nations agendas and to non-governmental organizations, and we see them in action. For example, UNICEF, with American money, is paying for Ukrainian teachers to teach uh, Ukrainian kids in our schools. Uh, and that's exactly what we need. We need support when it comes to accommodation to Ukrainians because you know, they're at our homes and people cannot offer that indefinitely. So most importantly, accommodation, but also long-term problems such as those that you've uh, just enumerated of education, healthcare, social protection, because we offered Ukrainians citizen-like uh, rights and of course uh, that costs a lot of money. Uh, just to give you one example, I have 280,000 kids in my schools and I have 120,000 additional Ukrainian kids in Warsaw. Mm. We've enrolled 20,000 of them already, but I mean it is impossible to simply enlarge your schools by 45% overnight. So we need assistance here. We need assistance when it comes to schooling, when it comes to uh, doctors, nurses, psychologists, because most of the kids who are coming to Poland are traumatized. And now the situation is this. Most of my social workers work with refugees. All of my psychologists work with refugees. We cannot keep it uh, up like that indefinitely, and that's why we need the whole world to step up. This week I spoke with some Poles in their 20s who have been working with refugees, and they are afraid that there will be a backlash, that the people of Poland who have been so welcoming will begin to resent all of the services that refugees are getting. Do you share that fear? Fortunately, it's not happening, but there is a danger uh, of that, and that's why we need a strategy. We need a uh, voluntary relocation scheme in Europe. We need uh, for the European Union and mostly the national government to start dealing with the problem in a systematic way. Because if no one helps us in Warsaw, of course, the quality of, of, of services provided by the city will go down, and that might uh, provoke a certain backlash. The mayor of the border town, Przemysz, told me that what is essential is that people keep moving west. He said if people clog his city, the system will collapse. And in a different way, that's true of Warsaw. People need to keep moving west. Do you feel that you are getting the support you need from countries to the west of you and even beyond Europe? Well, the mayor of Przemysz, who is a good friend, is of course absolutely right. And some countries are welcoming refugees, like Germany, which welcomed 700,000 refugees. But what we need is a system. We cannot improvise anymore. We are dealing with millions of people. And two months ago, I was calling, in the middle of the night, I was calling my friends uh, in different cities in Poland and, and, and in Europe and asking them for assistance. And we cannot do it like that, calling people in the middle of the night. We need a systematic solution to the problem. When I was here two months ago, what seemed like a very effective response also seemed like an emergency response that was built on the backs of volunteers. And I'm surprised to hear you say now in mid to late May that there still is not a systemic response, that it still feels like an ad hoc emergency response on the backs of volunteers. I'm very much surprised as well, but that's the role of the national government. I mean, it is the European Union which needs to be asked by the national government to actually come up with a systemic solution. We do have a strategy in Warsaw, but let me tell you this. I mean, if we have the best strategy in Poland and in Europe, that's going to actually, at the end of the day, work against us because otherwise everyone will want to come to Warsaw. And of course, 
as I'm very happy to, to, to welcome more people and to help them as much as we can, uh, you started yourself with a question about a backlash. If, if no one else is going to step up to the same level as we did, this solidarity of, of the people of Warsaw will sooner or later end. We went to the Medica border crossing earlier this week and there was a line nearly 10 miles long to return to Ukraine. Do you think that this problem is subsiding, that as the Ukrainian military begins to drive back the Russian military, that people will return and the pressure on your city will decrease? Some people are returning, uh, like the data from yesterday was that 25,000 left to, uh, to Kiev, so went back to Kiev, but 22,000 came from the war zone, from, from Donbass. So uh, that's the problem, that even though some people are going back, you know, we are witnessing some people coming in because of uh, the escalation of the crisis in the east and in the south. And no one knows uh, how this will develop. But one thing is sure, there are hundreds and thousands of people in Poland and in Warsaw who have no place to go back to. And there are seven million displaced people in Ukraine. So even if, uh, if, if the war ends tomorrow, and let's hope and pray to God that it will, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people will stay in Warsaw and we need to be prepared for that. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for having us in your beautiful city by the river on uh, this lovely day in Warsaw. Thank you very much. That was Warsaw Mayor Rafał Czeskowski. Our stories from Poland this week were edited by Courtney Dorning and produced by Matt Ozug, Ian Bior, and Elena Burnett, with help from Łucja Skolenkiewicz here in Poland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A Trump-era pandemic policy shutting U.S. borders to most asylum seekers will stay in place. Those restrictions had been scheduled to end on Monday, but today a federal judge blocked the Biden administration from that plan. Meanwhile, thousands of asylum seekers are in limbo. Elisa Resnick with member station KGZZ reports from Nogales, Mexico. At this shelter in Nogales called the Kino Border Initiative, a few hundred asylum seekers are meeting with legal advocates and being handed plastic plates of fresh food by volunteers. Prichkar from Haiti crossed through 10 countries with his wife to get here. He says they left Haiti about two years ago after gang members tried to kill him. We're only using his first name for his protection. He and his wife went to Chile at first. He says they face discrimination and more threat. I saw many ugly things when I was on the road to get here. Richard says. They hit heavy rain in Panama. He says he watched people slip and fall off steep mountain ridges to their deaths. It took a month for them to reach Mexico. They came to the border to begin the long process of applying for asylum in the U.S. But like thousands of others, they were blocked by the U.S. policy closing U.S. entry points to most migrants during the pandemic. Last month, news came to Nogales that the policy was slated to end in May. Richkar says hearing that, he felt happy and sad. Happy knowing that maybe his long journey might finally end in the U.S. But sad knowing this moment had come too late for thousands of other Haitians who've been sent back because of the policy. If I could change my country, I would, he says. But because he can't, he says he needs to get to the U.S. to protect his life. He says living in Nogales is dangerous. 
He says they can't work without permits, and they've been threatened. He knows migrants who have been kidnapped and held for ransom by members of organized crime. It's a risk hundreds of migrants stuck in Nogales know well, like Marie, a single mother from southwestern Mexico. She fled with her 12-year-old son and 4-year-old daughter after gang members burned parts of her town to the ground. We're only using Marie's first name for her safety. She says when the U.S. government announced it was lifting asylum restrictions at the border, she felt like this little door was opening for her and others, a hope. Last fall, she and dozens of other migrants held a protest. With vaccine cards and negative COVID tests in hand, they went to the border crossing and tried to ask for asylum. Each was turned away. There is no pandemic argument to keep them out, she says. It felt like things might finally change for her this month. She was in line to get an exemption and be allowed in. Or so she thought. Hola, Lisa. Pues, de salir a una in a message on WhatsApp, Marie told me legal advocates called her again last week, just as the lawsuit to keep the pandemic policy was going before a judge in Louisiana. She says they were told families would have to wait. She's not sure what will happen next, but she's trying to protect her kids. So she says she'll keep up the fight. She still has hope. For NPR News, I'm Elisa Resnick in Nogales, Mexico. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 60 degrees in Boston at 549. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, we'll have a review of the new Downton Abbey film, A New Era. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an Opera in Jazz, Cutler Majestic Theater, now through the 22nd, blo.org. Join WBUR reporter Barbara Moran Wednesday, June 8th, for a conversation on local sustainable eating, plus a gardening demo and farmer's market at City Space. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, chance of some showers or thunderstorms, the lows around 60 degrees. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. The highs will be in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot, and humid on Sunday, the highs will be near 97 degrees. Canadian comedians Kids in the Hall are back with a new show and gird your loins. You might be offended by some of their jokes, but that's not their intention. We've always felt like our comedy was centered in empathy, that we've never, yeah. we've I don't think we've ever done anything that we consider to be nasty or trying to attack anybody. That conversation and all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Starch the linens and polish the silver. They better be warned. The British are coming. The Crawleys are back on the big screen. 
Carson the Butler, the Earl of Grantham, Lady Mary, the whole gang. And critic Bob Mondello says they get to embark on a field trip in Downton Abbey, a new era. Let's see, where were we? The king and queen have departed Downton. Sister Edith is pregnant. Former chauffeur Tom Branson, having foiled an assassination plot, is dancing with a maid that he doesn't know is... Oh, wait, who cares? Here's the Dowager Countess. Years ago, before you were born, I met a man, and now I've come into the possession of a villa in the south of France. What? What, indeed. If you followed Downton through six seasons on TV, Violet's revelation will be catnip. And let it be said that while the film is subtitled A New Era, nothing's changed very much at Downton Abbey, except the roof is leaking and... A telephone call for you, my lord. Mr. Barber is a producer and director. He wants to make a film at Downton's. I think it's a horrible idea. Actresses plastered in makeup and actors just plastered. Yes, well, the roof still needs fixing and filmmakers pay, so Lady Mary packs Papa off to the south of France with some hangers-on, while she rides herd over the film crew with the rest of her thoroughly starstruck household staff, none giddier than footman Mr. Mosley. Hollywood is the ultimate dream factory, and I need dreams as much as the next man. Don't we all? Now, dreams were changing in 1928, as was Hollywood with the advent of the talkies, which lets creator Julian Fellows have some singing in the rain style fun in the family manse with a tempestuous blonde artiste. I do hope that was a prop. And a charmer of a matinee idol who is acted off the screen by his mustache. Both suddenly silent film fish out of water in a world of words, not unlike the British fish floundering around on the French Riviera. Bonjour, monsieur. Glare. Carson the butler trying oh, to buy a hat um, in French? Cover. C uh, cool. <laughs> yes. Having sent half the cast across the channel to that mysterious French villa, Julian Fellows and director Simon Curtis more or less have to cut back and forth to give them equal time, which results in a pretty schizoid opening hour, part filmmaking farce... And part mystery. Why did you invite us here? You will likely get a bit ahead of the Earl on that and some other plot twists. The Downton saga, full of fretful glances, but not really of surprises, has always been comfort food, or in the case of the movie versions, maybe just dessert. Anyway, things settle into more relatable rhythms when everyone's back at home in the presence of the Dowager Countess and her longtime frenemy, Isabel. It seems the public only want films that talk. I should have thought the best thing about films is that you can't hear them. Be even better if you couldn't see them either. <laughs> it goes without saying that Dame Maggie Smith, whether she's inspiring Carter to quote from King Lear or offering sage advice to the women she spent a lifetime leaving in her wake, remains the best reason to visit Downton Abbey, whatever the era. I'm Bob Mandela. It's one of the great cult classic horror franchises. The Evil Dead first hit the big screen in 1981. Since then, there have been sequels, a TV show, a musical, and now a video game. NPR's Vincent Acovino spoke with the team behind Evil Dead the Game about how to adapt a classic movie world to an interactive one while preserving what fans love about it. Like so many horror movies you've seen before, it all starts in a haunted cabin in the woods. Hey, Scotty, what's this place like anyway? Well, the guy that's renting it says it's an old place. A little run down. But this wasn't any old horror franchise. Each movie got weirder and more over the top. In Evil Dead 2, the main character Ash sits down in a chair. It breaks. 
The deer head mounted on the wall turns toward Ash and starts laughing. Along with everything else in the room, the lamp, the clocks, eventually even Ash himself joins in. It's a series known for its scares and laughs, and composer Joseph Leduca says that mix is unmistakably Evil Dead. The Three Stooges influence is very apparent, but the music plays it straight, and I think that that's what helps the absurdity of what gets introduced. He's been composing for the series since the very first movie. I was still in school at the time. What I had at my disposal for the budget that we had was to record in a little attic studio. I had four string players and anything else that I could grab and bang on. It was spit and glue. Leduca is back, writing the main theme for Evil Dead the Game. And maintaining that balance between spooky and comic is one way this game feels like what's come before it. Also important is maintaining the actual voice of the series itself. A slew of cast members are back to reclaim their roles, including Bruce Campbell, who played the protagonist Ash in the original trilogy. I've been called a lot of things. El Jefe, the savior of humanity, the boomstick butcher with the chainsaw hand. The truth is I'm just your everyday, charming, ruggedly handsome dude from Michigan. Working with Bruce was was, I feel like, a huge step forward for me, at least. Craig Sherman is the game's head writer. When his voice got into the game, it really started to feel like uh, an Evil Dead game. He did change some of the dialogue because, you know, he knows the character and he would say, you know, I feel like Ash would say it this way. And of course, we're, we're never going to tell Bruce Campbell what Ash should say because he's Ash. Bad news, we lost a fighter. Good news, it wasn't me. The iconic Cabin in the Woods setting is back in the game, too. But designing for a 3D space is a little different than a movie on a screen. Steve Molitz worked with the sound design team when he scored the music for the game. It's a lot of fun to sit with individual files for wind, the creaking of iconic Cabin in the Woods, a swamp. Once you start to put them together and play with panning so that it's surrounding the player, that's when the magic happens. These sounds and the game's brand new music tracks shift and change based on whatever the player is experiencing. If you're exploring, the music is going to be more of an ambient drone. As you start to encounter enemies, maybe some deadites spawn on a hillside as you're walking through the forest, now, suddenly, the music swells and ramps up. For Mullets and the team, the whole project, really, is an exercise in staying true to what came before it. I think players will be able to hear all the time and passion that went into this. It really is a love letter to Evil Dead and to the fans. And Joseph Leduca says it's unbelievable to think the first thing he worked on is still alive to this day. Not just for longtime fans, but a whole generation of new ones. You can't kill it. Vincent Acavino, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 62 degrees in Boston. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Wednesday, June 1st for a city space conversation with dancer, choreographer, and MacArthur fellow Michelle Dorrance. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, cloudy tonight. Chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog and clouds will give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. The highs will be in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot, and humid on Sunday. The high near 97 degrees. Cooler with some clouds giving way to some sun on Monday. The highs will be in the mid-60s. Right now, 62 degrees in Boston. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. limited privilege of living in a country where access to abortion is better than it is in Poland. An underground network in Europe brings together volunteers with people who need abortions. It's Friday, May 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, since the war in Ukraine began, that network has seen its requests for help double. Also this hour, a recap of this week's primaries led by Senate contests in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And last year, we analyzed whether the lifestyle of the fictional TV family The Simpsons was attainable for the middle class. A writer on the show listened and decided to answer that question with an episode of their own. Get set for a hot weekend. Record temperatures could be heading our way. Marketplace is coming up at 6.30. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is in Seoul, South Korea, his first trip to Asia since taking office. As NPR's Asma Holland reports, this visit is without, without reaffirming his commitment to the region. Shortly after landing, the president took a tour of a Samsung facility that manufactures semiconductors. Samsung is building a similar plant in Texas, and the president spoke about the need to build more resilience in supply chains. So our economy our economic and our national security are not dependent on countries that don't share our values. A critical component of how we'll do that, in my view, is by working with close partners who do share our values. Later in his trip, Biden plans to launch a new initiative called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's an attempt to establish common principles around things like digital trade while trying to counter China's ambitions in the region. 
Asma Khalid, NPR News, Pyeongtaek, South Korea. The federal judges blocked the Biden administration from lifting the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 next week. That public health order, which had been set to end on Monday, allows immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants at the border without allowing them to seek asylum. The ruling is a victory for the Republican-led states that are pushing to extend the restrictions. More than 20 states signed on to a lawsuit brought by Arizona, Missouri, and Louisiana. They argued the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did not go through the proper procedures to end Title 42. Fire officials are holding their breath as a nasty combination of winds, high temperatures, and dry air descend on New Mexico. What will be one of the worst weather days the Gulf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire has seen. Remember station KUNM, Bryce Dix reports the fire has the potential to grow. Winds of up to 50 miles per hour are expected to whip up flames in drought-stricken areas of northern New Mexico, where the historically large fire has already charred 300,000 acres of land. Fire operations official Jason Coyle says Friday is going to be tough for firefighters. There's things beyond our control today that we, um, you know, that we're just going to have to respond to. Coyle says if predictions come true, this fire could grow anywhere from 10 to 30,000 acres. There is hope, though. A looming cold front will sweep through the state this weekend, bringing cooler temperatures, light morning freezes, and some much-needed moisture. Several blazes in New Mexico are starting to catch the eye of fire officials, including the Gila National Forest Black Fire that sparked this past week. For NPR News, I'm Bryce Dix in Albuquerque. New emails appear to indicate the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, was more deeply involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election than previously thought. According to the email, the conservative political activists called on GOP lawmakers in Arizona after the election to choose their own slate of electors, arguing election results that gave the slate to Democrat Joe Biden was flawed. On Wall Street today, the Dow was up eight points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Temperatures this weekend are forecast to be in the 90s and could break heat records for May. The National Weather Service warns the heat and humidity could cause illness. People are being urged to stay hydrated and limit time outdoors. Mayor Michelle Wu is declaring a heat emergency in the city of Boston. WBUR's Paul Kinerney explains. Mayor Wu says the city is working quickly to protect residents from the extreme weather. Air-conditioned community centers will be open during the day. People are being asked to wear a mask inside these facilities because of the rising COVID cases. There's not enough time to open the city's outdoor pools, but spray parks and playgrounds will be working. The Boston Public Health Commission's emergency shelters are always open and have air conditioning. The city is working with other shelters to protect those experiencing homelessness. The Wu administration is working on a plan to prepare Boston for more intense heat because of global warming. Boston is experiencing about a dozen days over 90 degrees every summer. A Catholic church in Dorchester slated to close in just a couple of weeks will stay open for now. St. Brendan Church on Gallivan Boulevard was expected to close May 31st. Cardinal Sean O'Malley says more discussion and planning is needed around the future of the parish. The Archdiocese has assigned a working group to take that on with a September 30th deadline for recommendations. The news comes under mounting pressure from parishioners who have fought to keep the church open. The Environmental Protection Agency is offering disadvantaged communities help in buying school buses that are better for the environment. An agency official made the announcement in Boston today. $500 million is available for zero-emissions vehicles that can transport students while not endangering the children's health or the environment. Boston is planning to replace its entire fleet of 700 school buses with electric vehicles. 
Advocates for cycling say Boston could do more to encourage people to ditch their cars and get around by bike. Eliza Parade of the Boston Cyclists Union says the city has made a commitment to build six miles of protected bike lanes this year. We are seeing more bike lanes pop up across Boston, which we're really excited about, and they really need to be connected from where people are starting to where they're ending in order for people to make that shift. City officials say there are more than 20 bike corridor projects underway or in the planning phase. Today marks National Bike to Work Week. Hundreds observed the occasion by biking this morning to downtown Crossing for a celebration. Sports, the Red Sox will be hosting the Mariners tonight over at Fenway. The forecast, cloudy tonight, chances some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog and clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-90s. Sunny, hot, and humid on Sunday. Highs near 97 degrees. Right now, 63 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. Imagine stepping across a border and discovering that reproductive rights you once took for granted are now a crime. For millions of Ukrainians, that discovery happened when they fled the war in their home country and set foot here in Poland. Ukraine has very liberal abortion laws. In Poland, it's almost entirely illegal. But while Poland's anti-abortion effort has the weight of the government behind it, there is another movement, one that's secretive, underground, and punishable with prison time. You see it right here on the border, if you know where to look. At the Medica border crossing, there are bright blue porta-potties for Ukrainian refugees who've just arrived in Poland. And someone has taped flyers inside the doors of these toilets. They offer information in Ukrainian and Russian. My colleague is reading aloud. It says, you are not alone. The card has phone numbers for a gynecology hotline. There are logos for Polish reproductive rights groups that connect with a network of women's organizations across Europe. Members of these groups take real risks to help refugees and others access reproductive services that they would have no trouble getting in Ukraine. Oksana Litvinenko asked to meet us at our hotel in Warsaw, not at her home or office, because anti-abortion protesters have targeted her personally. And so she takes precautions, my colleague interprets as she speaks. Of course. Even they were coming to my daughter's school. She was 12 back then. And we have different last names with my daughter. And dad keep her safe. Litvinenko is Ukrainian and has lived in Poland for 18 years. In a country that has targeted LGBTQ people, she wears a watch with a rainbow wristband. Her hair is cut into a short buzz. She has a day job which gives her access to the people she helps through her volunteer work. <laughs> Definitely. She is a Ukrainian-Polish interpreter. And so when refugees need to end a pregnancy, they confide in her. 
but she says they rarely ask outright. They use euphemisms. They are trying to describe it in other way. They are asking for uh, pills to make period come faster. People in other countries can legally send abortion pills to Poland, but here Litvinenko speaks very carefully. Okay, I didn't give it to their hands. Are you saying that carefully because giving someone an abortion pill is a crime in Poland? Yeah. Yeah. Three years of prison. Three years of prison. And yet you still give these women the help they ask for. I am feminist and Polish feminists are different than feminists from different countries because they have a real goal. At this, Litvinenko sits up straight and smiles for the first time in our conversation, a wry grin. She stops twisting the thumb ring that she's been turning while we talk. Now I feel here most needed because I'm not only language translator, but also Polish reality translator. The threat of prosecution for helping someone end a pregnancy is real. Justyna Wiedzienska is a member of a Polish group called Abortion Dream Team. She is the first activist to face criminal charges under this law. She was charged two months ago, accused of helping a woman who was in an abusive relationship end a pregnancy. She was begging us, please help me somehow. My colleague NPR correspondent Joanna Kakissis spoke with the activist. Because she couldn't travel abroad, he, uh, he told her that if she traveled with their few years old kid, then he report a kidnapping to the police. And uh, after that, when uh, he just blackmailed her, uh, she decided just to ask if you could please send me pills, but please do it uh, in total secret. But he somehow got the information because he, uh, he called the police and said she received kind of help from somebody. She got pills from some, somebody. Vijenska doesn't know whether prosecutors will be lenient and give her a suspended sentence or make an example out of her and send her to prison for years. There is another layer to this story, and we'll warn you that this might be difficult to hear. Russian soldiers have used rape as a weapon of war, and that can lead to pregnancy. They want to keep a top secret of this. Even they don't want to share this with their families. Christina Katzpura is head of the women's rights group FEDERA. That's one of the organizations behind those flyers and the porta potties at the border. FEDERA has existed since 1991. Back then, abortion was widely available in Poland. Lately, she's been doing a lot of work with Ukrainian refugees, some of whom have been raped. They said to me that uh, war will end one day. 
and we have to continue our normal life. How can I tell about this to my partner or husband? He has been fighting in Ukraine. We uh, want to have a normal life. I don't want to be regarded as a victim of sexual violence, victim of rapes. Even if I sometimes ask them just to be a victims, to be to certificate this case, no, no. Technically, Polish law allows abortion in cases of rape. But according to Poland's health ministry, the country has never had more than three such cases in a year. Katspora says the government makes ending a pregnancy practically impossible, even for rape victims. You know, investigation, announcement to, to the police and prosecutor. Could you imagine uh, a poor Ukrainian woman or girl uh, who will go and answer many questions and will wait for two weeks for the decision of prosecutor? Katspora's organization, Fedora, has set up a hotline. It's staffed by a Ukrainian gynecologist, a doctor who is herself a refugee from Kyiv. Sometimes the advice the doctor gives is call your auntie Basha. The phrase in Polish is Chocha Basha. Uh, Chocha Basha, um, it's auntie Barbara, auntie Basha. It's diminutive from quite traditional Polish name, a name that you can put in your phone and it doesn't look suspicious because everyone in Poland has some auntie Basha. Zuzana Juban is one of many women who identify as Chocha Basha. The B in Basha stands for Berlin. Juban is Polish, but she's living in Germany, where abortion is widely available. In Austria, where we have Auntie Vienna, with the name sounding a little bit like Vienna, and uh, Auntie Czesia in the Czech Republic. Those are names that are common in their respective countries. This is an underground network stretching across Europe. From Germany, Juban helps people in Poland who need abortions. Most often, she sends them pills. Other times, her collective helps them travel west. They provide train tickets, housing, counseling, whatever people need. I have this limited privilege of living in a country where access to abortion is uh, better than it is in Poland. Uh, so I, I simply feel that I have the obligation to, to share this privilege. Since the war began in late February, the requests to her network have doubled. By their count, the aunties have helped more than 400 Ukrainians end their pregnancies. I asked Juban to share the story of one of them, and she told me about a woman whose husband was killed by the Russians. She's in Poland for uh, four weeks and uh, just learned about the death of her husband. And uh, she simply cannot have uh, keep this, uh, like, continue this pregnancy. And this was like a really a heavy emotional moment for me, uh, like the war becoming very real through, through this one story. And uh, I shed some tears, but uh, also supported her in, um, in ordering pills, told her where to do it. And um, yeah, I cried a bit, but then thought, okay, Susa, this is the new reality. Get used to it. Are you able to go home to Poland? Do you worry that you will be prosecuted if you do? We have this conviction and we try to convince ourselves that uh, that the fact that we are doing our activism uh, in Germany, where Polish law does not uh, apply, uh, we are relatively safe. But we can never know how uh, Polish prosecutors will, uh, will interpret uh, situations. And actually, since um, we are uncertain how, how this can develop.
they start going after activists, uh, for instance, working abroad. Zuzana Juban told me the name of her group, Auntie Basha, comes from a Kenyan collective called Auntie Jane. That group took its name from the Jane Collective, the underground organization that helped people access abortion in the United States before it was legal. The Jane Collective disbanded after the Supreme Court legalized abortion in the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, a recap of the midterm primaries this week in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. In business news, the pace of job creation in Massachusetts is slowing. A new report from the state's Department of Labor finds employers here added 10,000 jobs last month. That was less than half the number that was created in March. Economists say the slowdown could be a sign that interest rate hikes are slowing growth. Wall Street stocks were mixed. The Dow was up nine points at 31,262. NASDAQ fell three-tenths of a percent, or 34 points, to 11,355. The S&P 500 was flat to end the day at 3,901. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up in about 10 minutes at 6.30 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Full bar and live music Fridays, tapas529.com. In sports, the Red Sox host the Mariners tonight over at Fenway. Celtics and the Heat play Game 3 of their playoff series at the Garden tomorrow. That series is tied at one game each. In the forecast, cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The lows will be around 60 degrees. Patchy fog, clouds give way to mostly sunny skies and hot temperatures tomorrow. Highs will be in the 90s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Midterm elections are nearly half a year away, but the primary contests to determine who will run for the House and Senate seats this fall, those have already started. Former President Trump is playing a big role by endorsing Republican candidates who pledge loyalty to him. Some of those candidates had their primaries Tuesday, and more elections next week will test the power of a Trump endorsement. Joining us now is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hello, Domenico. Hey there. Good to join you. So catch us up on what's happened this week so far in Pennsylvania, where Trump-endorsed candidate Dr. Oz took on former hedge fund CEO David McCormick. Yeah, that's right. You know, and Mehmet Oz is only narrowly ahead at this hour by 1,100 votes out of more than 1.3 million. Uh, We aren't likely to know the winner for days, if not weeks, because the margin is just so small. It's well within the 0.5 percentage points that would trigger an automatic recount. And that's bad news for Republicans because it means a delay to the general election in a key Senate race Democrat 
Democrats are targeting as a pickup opportunity after what's really been a bruising Republican primary. Uh, the Democratic nominee is Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who dons a chin beard and tattoos. He had a stroke in the past several days and had a pacemaker installed on Election Day. He looks the part of a blue-collar trucker more than <laughs> someone with a Harvard degree in the politics of Bernie Sanders, but that's true, too. Uh, this is really going to be a big test for him, for Democrats, and when we finally get to a general election of whether a Democrat with his kind of image and tone can appeal to that populist Venn diagram of the left and some on the right. So much drama. <laughs> President Trump, how have his endorsements fared so far? They've had some mixed success. You know, this week, Oz is, of course, locked in that tight race. Trump got a win in the Pennsylvania governor's race, giving a major boost to state Senator Doug Mastriano. Mastriano is pretty controversial and hard right. He was at Trump's January 6th rally, marched to the Capitol, though he says he left before the violent insurrection took place. And he's an election denier and culture warrior in a purple state, saying if elected, he's going to focus on day one on things like how kids are taught about racism in schools and which bathrooms people can use. Uh, in North Carolina this week, Trump was largely responsible for Congressman Ted Budd winning the GOP nomination uh, for the Senate race, though he had less success with the controversial Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who lost his bid for re-election. Out west in the Idaho governor's race, his preferred candidate, who had the backing of some extremists in the state, took, uh, you know, uh, took on a sitting Republican governor and really was trounced. But even, you know, the explicit, even though the explicit record of endorsements was mixed, the winner, you could really argue, is MAGA. You know, virtually every Republican who's run has tried to be MAGA and vie for Trump's support. Not everyone, but most. And, you know, Trump has truly taken over the party's heart and soul. There is just no majority against Trumpism. The minority really is those right now opposed to it. Mm. Well, there are more of Trump's candidates who are being tested next Tuesday. Which races are you watching closely? So much of the action really is in Georgia. Uh, you know, Trump recruited and endorsed David Perdue, the former senator, to take on incumbent Governor Brian Kemp because Trump was upset that Kemp didn't do more to overturn the results of the presidential election in the state that he lost. But right now, it looks like Kemp is winning by a lot in the polls, despite Purdue making the entire election essentially pushing Trump's lie. Uh, Purdue is running hardly any ads now, and Trump world behind the scenes has really abandoned Purdue. Uh, it really is shocking to watch, frankly, for someone who was the CEO of Reebok in David Purdue and was considered a business establishment Republican. For him to take this turn, really surprising to a lot of people who've watched his career. Then, of course, there's the Secretary of State's race there. There's no greater target for for Trump than Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State, the Republican who also refused to bow to Trump's pressure on the election, and also watching Texas, where there's a key Democratic primary between Democrat, uh, the uh, Democrat in Congress, uh, Henry Cuellar, against progressive Jessica Cisneros. Cuellar is the only Democrat in Congress who considers himself against abortion rights. Quite the shift in the Democratic Party, which used to have more people who consider themselves against abortion rights and abortion we're seeing become a huge issue in this election. Thank you. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. You're welcome. This Sunday is The Simpsons season 33 finale. And guess what? It was inspired by none other than our colleagues over at The Indicator from Planet Money. In an episode last year, Patty Hirsch and Stacey Vanek-Smith followed the lead of an Atlantic article to question whether this iconic family's middle-class lifestyle is still attainable today. In late 2020, The Atlantic published its great piece on The Simpsons, and in March of last year, we aired our episode. Tim Long has been writing for The Simpsons for 24 years. So I started kicking that around in my mind, and then I thought, well, what's the funniest way that we could respond? And then it felt like, 
What if it were a musical? In the show, Homer's son Bart embraces the American dream. And he decides that he, like Homer, will work at the nuclear power plant and replicate his father's middle-class life. And then it takes this crazy turn where Bart is informed via a musical number that that may not be possible anymore. Your dad and his buddies had it swell. But gradually it all went to hell. Factories closed, unemployment was... The primary voice in the song is none other than Hugh Jackman. And he plays a sort of magical singing janitor who takes Bart on a musical journey through the American economy from the end of the Second World War until now. 1945, we won the war. Our boys came back to the factory floor. The good so Homer gets his nuclear plant job during that post-war boom. Bart's prospects today, however, don't seem so good. For one thing, if he wants his dad's job, he's going to need to go to college. A fact his little sister Lisa takes great delight in telling him. Yo, all I need is a foot in the door and I'll take dad's job when he does at 44. That job you see now needs a PhD while paying student loans leaves you in poverty. Oh, Lisa Simpson. Such a downer. downer. Uh, Truly, though, she has a point. Uh, In fact, when we crunched the numbers on the Simpsons household last year, we worked out that Homer would earn about the equivalent of $50,000 a year in today's dollars. Tough to send a kid to college on that kind of money, let alone get them an advanced degree. It's a good thing kids these days have options. Because there's a lot of new ways a guy can make a dollar. Ride the money train, make it rain, holla. I'll buy and sell Bitcoin, build a new app, do pranks on YouTube. I'm great at that crap. Film TikTok tricks on my sick motorbike. Your chances are slim. Go to hell, Robert Rice. Robert Rice! Robert Rice! (laughs) Economists, they're everywhere. So the former Labour Secretary from the Clinton administration came on the show to, as Tim puts it, throw down some facts. The decline of unions, rampant corporate greed, Wall Street malfeasance, and the rise of short-sighted politics all contributed to increased economic inequality, widespread real unemployment... You know who comes out of this episode looking pretty good, though, Patty? Are firefighters. Mm, In the last act of the show, after Bart's fragile hopes for his future have been torched by Lisa and (laughs) Hugh Jackman and Robert Reich, uh, Bart gets himself into this terrible situation, and he is rescued, saved by firefighters. Hang on tight, you'll be okay. Thanks. By the way, how good's your pay? Pay's good, and pension's great when we retire. Nice. The point that we're trying to make is that the middle class is sort of a vanishing species. And so, you know, we were slightly tongue-in-cheek when we said that fireman is the job that he should get, but he could do worse. Patty Hirsch. Stacey Vanek-Smith. NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees in Boston. Marketplace is coming up next. Join Anita Hill and Nina Totenberg at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to sponsor Molly Shannon. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. 
and Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org.